You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Business Breaks, the podcast where we take a pause from the hustle and bustle of the corporate world to deep dive into the realm of successful project management. I'm your host Dan Healy, and I'm joined by the expert mind of co-host John Byrne. Together we'll explore the ins and outs of the business landscape, unraveling the secrets of avoiding project failure and achieving outstanding results. From our years of experience in the field, we've seen it all, the triumphs, the pitfalls, and the invaluable lessons that come with them. So grab your favourite coffee, or take a moment to unwind, because with Business Breaks, you're in for an engaging journey of knowledge and strategies to ensure your projects soar to new heights. So John and I will delve into the real-world experience to examine the top reasons for project failure and uncover tried-and-tested approaches that lead to success. And ultimately, we believe that learning from both our triumphs and setbacks is essential to becoming a master of project management. So if you're a business enthusiast, an an aspiring project leader, or anyone keen on conquering the challenges head on, this podcast is tailor-made for you. Get ready to revolutionize your project management skills as we embark on this business breaks journey together. Stay tuned, stay inspired, and break new ground in the world of business and project management. So, John, would you like to kick off? What are the typical causes of project project failure, and where would you start in terms of why do projects fail, and where do where did where does it all go wrong? I suppose to kick off, I'll define what I'm going to be meaning by project failure because. Um, I suppose there are different definitions of it. The most obvious definition being you don't go live with something. But my definition of project failure is also going to take in going live with something that doesn't do, doesn't achieve the original goal. And, you know, if your original goal is, say, to speed up, if, if you're, if you're in finance, it's the, you know, put in a system that will speed up your month end process. And cut three days off it you'll go live with something and it won't have cut any days off your rundown process i consider that a failure a lot of people will def- define it as a success because the project went live but i would consider that a failure because it doesn't achieve what you were aiming to achieve and you know when you look at some of the well not some of pretty much all the different um project management qualifications courses etc the first thing they start with is it's also the first thing that i would see as being one of the biggest errors it's the planning phase getting ready for the project and from my experience looking at them that's where so many projects sow the seeds for failure because they don't completely do the planning they they don't do the analysis they don't look into you know how they're going to achieve what that goal is they uh, you know i suppose one of the biggest things is that they they pretty much rely on anecdotal evidence rather than analysis. Whoever's doing the project thinks they know what needs to be fixed and they go and shoot off on that. But oftentimes anecdotal, you know, evidence and anecdotal research can lead to three main problems in my opinion. Number one being, are you actually, are you dealing with the surface symptoms or are you dealing with the underlying cause? Because if all you're doing is the surface symptoms, you can fix that and it will not have any impact because that wasn't really what was causing the problem. Something else, and without the analysis, you will find out something else. The other problem with anecdotal stuff is, are you really dealing with the main issues or are you dealing with the most annoying issues for you? Because they may not be the same thing. Something that you find really annoying and frustrating might not actually be causing the problem that's ultimately trying to be solved. And then the tour room is just kind of a little sidestep of that. Are you truly dealing with the main issues or are you dealing with the most annoying things from the most vocal people? That you have a few people in the business who are very vocal about what upsets them. 
but you're missing out on the stuff that you know other people are are not bringing to your attention because maybe they're just quiet people, introverts, and they're not good at, at being noticed. Maybe they're afraid to bring it to your attention because they kind of feel, oh, if I'm saying this is tough and this is my job, that I'm basically saying I can't do my job, which is not the case. And then the third thing is you, you do get some people that fear change, that they're afraid if they bring this up and it is fixed, well, this is their whole job, so they lose their job, which again is not the, the goal of most of these things. It's easy, but they're the kind of, um, from that point at the beginning is, is where, in my experience, most projects that fail have failed at that stage. So how about yourself, Dante? What have your experience has been in, in that type of situation? I'm with you on that, John, in the sense that you you sow the seeds of your successful failure in terms of the laying the groundwork at the start of the project, doing the right setup, doing the due diligence in the analysis, declaring what are real facts versus assumptions, and then making sure you go back because especially in large organizations that are more dynamic, things will change regularly and frequently and therefore you can't base an assumption on what was true today might not be true by the time you start executing the project so there's the planning piece which you quite rightly called out and you know when you say you don't get you you just scratch the surface you run on assumptions because of people telling you how things are but you don't validate I've had a lot of that, especially with some hotshot people, you know, the superstars who are confident in meetings and they'll, they'll regurgitate other people's anecdotal statements, but not necessarily do the analysis themselves. They just want to get things going because they have an agenda to create an impact, but not necessarily without doing necessarily the necessary groundwork. And I wouldn't say that's true of everybody, but that's true of the projects that fail. And then on the flip side, once you've gone past the planning stage, you're in execution mode and there's a lot of failure in that. So improper planning will set yourself up for improper execution as well. But you can plan well and you can still not execute very well as well. And that can be caused by a number of things. You don't have enough resources, and by enough resources, I mean the right resources, the right people with the right skills at the right time. Because the people, you can have people who are project managers, but you also need business analysts, you need your subject matter experts, you need your system experts, and you also need to respect a sequence of events that at each stage from the analysis, the design, the build to the testing, and then finally the deployment, all of those steps, all of those phases have steps which must be respected. Yeah, you can shortcut certain steps if you know what you're doing and you understand what the shortcuts are because maybe you've invested more time in the design so you don't have to test as much or perhaps you've already got continuous integration, continuous development process in place. So testing might be automated and you don't have to do full regression testing because things are modularized depending on how you architect your systems. But these are kind of nuances, right? You need to understand where you can customize. If you have made assumptions that you're going to shortcut certain things, you need to declare them. You need to make sure also that if you have really cut corners on the design phase, the earliest earliest stages, you put more, you invest more resources into testing because you're going to find a lot of bugs. And you also need to have contingency as well. So when we talk about resources, I find a lot of failure comes through having no contingency plan and then you end up taking huge risks on go live by rushing things to meet a time, uh, a target timeline. And it may be for good reason you need to crash the project because it might be part of an overall program and you don't want to put the whole program into red, you know, the red, amber, green status when you're talking about how you're performing to cost and schedule. 
But at the end of the day, you're right. The first thing to do is define what does failure mean. And failure can be a number of things. You can fail because you went way over budget to the extent that the benefits mean that there is no positive ROI or you're locked into running a new system much longer than you you would you'd originally planned for in order to reach that return on investment which may be a fallacy because the pace of technology means that perhaps it might have been better that you hadn't done the project at all <laughs> or waited a little bit longer and then maybe wait for the latest technology that is better faster cheaper and i guess in terms of other things that can derail a project there's also the external factors which are outside the project's contr immediate control so just to be clear what we're talking about are those controllable factors that lead to failure but sometimes there is there are things in the external environment which mean that through no fault of the project it may fail naturally because for example changing political environment I know that Brexit derailed a few of my project initiatives around that time because the organization I was working for at that time, we had a massive transformation. In certain areas, they accelerated some plans and in other areas, they mothballed. So they basically parked some initiatives that unfortunately most of the initiatives were at that time on my in my program of projects so the resources were redeployed to accelerate certain other key initiatives and that was mainly around being able to protect the european business as a uk bank and um, i suppose i just wanted to a couple of things that, that you uh, brought up there first thing is i just kind of you know mentioned to, to the listeners and that when we're talking about the projects we are probably from our experience a lot of them are involved it so you'll, you'll hear us bringing up IT systems and, and things like that, but it's irrelevant whether you know it's it's the project could be based purely on business processes that have nothing to do with IT systems. They're all going to work out the same. It's just where we're saying systems, you, you may slap in processes or manufacturing or, or you know depending on your project. And you know more specific in part, you know from one of you know the examples that you said, things can change. You know from start to the end. And part of your planning is going to be to put together a good business case for the project. But where I also see a lot of businesses fall down is, and there's an example here in Ireland at the moment, and I have absolutely no problem naming the business involved because it's a semi-state body, the National Transport Authority, and they are putting in place at the moment new bus lane routes and things like that, and it's costing an absolute fortune. And they were brought up by the... Um, the parliament here that they have a public accounts committee when there's big projects that spend a lot of taxpayers money and they were asking them about a lot of the problems that have been you know arising and one of the questions one of the politicians very unusual for a politician to be about business savvy but whoever it was he got good advice and asked them does the business case still stand is it, is it still being done and the reply from the national transport authority who are spending multi-millions of taxpayers money on this was they've done no analysis of the business case since it was created they'll review it when the project is finished that's their thing now when you're you know i think everybody nearly gets used to that especially ireland and, and the uk um i'm not assuming it's the same everywhere else in the world where you know semi say when it's taxpayers money they can do things like that there's no accountability nobody will lose their job for wasting a load of money and it's taxpayers' money, so they don't really care. But when you're talking about private industry, you will be held accountable if you went and did a project and ended up wasting lots and lots of money because you didn't do any reviews. And, you know, that money will not be replaced. It's not possible. So when you do the business case, now, if it's a very small project, there might not be any room to do this if you're only delivering one small thing and, and that's it. But you know, common sense will convince that. But when it's a big project and it's spanning a length of time that's, yeah, coming up to 12 months, 48 months, something in between, uh, you do need to have some points in your plan where you're going to review the business case and see, does it still make business sense? Because if it doesn't make business sense, you need to stop. Um, there's no point in wasting good money after that. 
So, uh, yeah, or you may just have to tweak what you're doing. You know, maybe as you said, things have changed. So that original business case doesn't make sense, but you'll take something out. You won't deliver this, but you'll deliver something else instead. And suddenly you've made a new business case. You know, the change request then goes through, you know, the change process goes through and you change the project, something that will deliver value. But that is part of the planning. The planning doesn't end at the, when the project, you know, the planning doesn't end when you sign off on the project plan and start delivering. There should still be a regular, uh, you know, analysis of how the project is going. Does the business case still make sense? Are we still delivering something that will give us value? Exactly. And again, that comes back to governance as well as monitoring and control. And also there's this other piece of it where people talk about waterfall versus agile. And this is a big misconception that only agile projects tend to revise and review regularly in in the two to four week sprints. But that's not true at all because a good waterfall project will always reevaluate the plan. A great project manager will re will continuously update the plan. And what you'll find is if it's a very complex undertaking, there will be this element of progressive elaboration. You'll put in placeholders for the high level key milestones, but the detailed tasks you wouldn't really do for much more than three to six months ahead of schedule. And that's really to check that you're still on time with your overall program milestone. So even if it's a two to four year project, you're still going to keep elaborating, which again comes back to your point about A, not having a business case and B, then running on an assumption that without doing any analysis, you're just assuming that it will suddenly deliver value, which is really risky because there's it betrays this idea that there's been no real thought behind the project or the undertaking. And then with governments, it's always about the politics. So there's a whole load of other issues around that, especially around the procurement side of things and how do how are contracts sourced, how are subcontractors sourced? Because, yeah, people do get frustrated because there is clearly evidence of waste and when we talk about anecdotes that I, I've had more than enough people tell me about how public projects have historically wasted tons of money. There are people who are bureaucrats who, who uh, collude with certain vendors in order to uh, pay them inflated rates, which again is anecdotal. So I can't say I've got any, Exactly. Yeah. I think as well with that, and just to, to bring up, you know, a lot of the people here who would be doing projects are probably saying, well, I'm not going to collude and, and, and things like that. But the other side of that is it's not just about collusion. There's a lot of people who will, uh, but that's who we work with. You know, that they, they won't change, you know, they, they'll do a project to say implement a system to help them do something, but they'll insist on using a particular brand of software that doesn't really do what they needed to do because that's mm-hmm. who they work with. You know, they, uh, they have, you know, I don't really want to name brands of software, but everybody knows that, you know, whatever industry you're in, there's, there's somebody who makes software for your industry. There's, there's going to be more than one usually. Yeah. You know, this is very niche. It's going to get more than one, but oftentimes what happens is this, they'll all have different strengths and weaknesses and the business, instead of saying, what do we need now? They'll say, what can they offer? The people we always use, what can they offer? And, and if they don't offer what we need, they'll still stick with them. And it's collusion. It's just kind of, you know, sometimes a misplaced sense of loyalty that, you know, we've always done business. They've been good to us. We have to stick with them. But at a certain point, it's, if, if it's strategically important enough to you, you know, there, there are different types of projects as well as tactical projects and strategic. So certainly for a strategic project, if it's that strategically important to the growth of your business, you need to come out of where a fresh pair of eyes and do not just stick with the partners you currently use out of a sense of loyalty. If they don't deliver what you need for your strategy, change them. So, you know, sometimes, as you said, especially with bigger companies, much larger companies, um, there can be a little bit of, of collusion there that's causing it. But with smaller companies, you know, the people themselves, they may not even realize what they're doing. They might not just thought of it, but it's, it's not so much collusion. But the, 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 uh, 
the effects are the same. You're yeah. sticking with somebody for the wrong reason. They don't deliver what you really need, but you're not moving from them. Yeah. And again, with projects, it's also that idea that you're expecting some big outcome. Ultimately, a project will deliver an output that leads to improved capability that leads to an improved business outcome. So there's a sequence of events, but a system will only augment what you have. And I've seen in a lot of projects when you implement a new system, the business hasn't actually addressed the underlying process issues that would augment what the new system will bring. So if a new system is brought and it's layered on top of a bad process, it's only going to augment that bad process. So you need to really rethink how you do things and really understand what does the system do and what needs to change in your business in order to accommodate that. Maybe the system that you're looking at initially isn't a fit, but there may be another system that will not completely change what you do, but will complement your own approach to how you deliver value to your customer. But if you don't understand that and you go for the biggest, shiniest, best-in-class object, you may find it's not a good fit. So again, procurement and making those right decisions on what's the solution for you is probably a good way to avoid that failure. It's understanding what is the problem you're looking to solve and then finding the most cost-effective approach to solving it. And it might not even need... If you find that by just evaluating your processes, you can see opportunities, you may not need a whole system to do it. It may be a couple of tweaks, a few new integrations, or even a, a new way of doing things. Have you found that, John, where you've seen a system implemented and it's just doubled the cost but not actually added any value? Yeah, many times. I think that... It, it, kind of comes back to a, a bit of the initial planning, but what it often comes down to is not being clear with the requirements, which is part of the planning, but it's its own, it's such an important part. It's almost its own thing. It, you know, you know, they don't, again, they're using anecdotal evidence rather than analysis, which means they, they're not mapping, they're not documenting the processes yeah. as they are. And so they have no idea where they're even starting from in order to get to where they want to go. And that means, yeah, the requirements can't be fully accurate. It's, it's, you know, the, the other issue as well, I think, is people confuse a wish list for a set of requirements. Mm. But the wish list is, is a, you know, it, it's kind of usually quite vague. It's a blurry picture. You need, and especially if it's an IT, a project that needs an IT implement, implementation. So mm. you need developers or something like that. Their brains are wired completely differently to a finance person's brain or a HR person's brain and stuff like that. So, you know, finance, say, for the typical pro projects I've worked on are finance and IT. You know, IT putting in a system for finance, but they speak very different languages. So while a vague wish list item may be perfectly clear to a finance person, when they describe that to a, an IT person, it means nothing. An IT person needs to know what the requirements are, and a wish list is not a requirement. So the way you get the requirements, that's what the business analyst will do, or in a, if it's a small enough project and the project manager has time, it'd be the project manager, but somebody carrying out that role will do, is they, they look at your wish list item, that's where you want to be. They look at where you are now, and then they'll figure out what steps are needed to get there. They want it, they're not a black box. They're not going to take it away, walk it out and come back and say, here's the solution. They're going to extract that extract that information from the business users because the business users are the ones who have it. But what the business analyst is going to do is is extract that information and translate it into a set of user requirements that can be handed to IT, and they'll understand that. Uh, and that can be a big thing as well. You know, they'll the business users won't do that, won't take that step. They'll have their anecdotal evidence. They'll go with a wish list to IT and IT will give them exactly what they asked for but what it turns out is at the end they asked for the wrong thing or they may have asked for the right thing but they've given an in incomplete analysis yeah. so they might they, they oh, yeah, the wrong way yeah yeah or yeah. they they've not actually done their homework and what you find is that a lot of business people 
especially in large organizations, they're geared towards their little part of the process. So especially if they're functional leaders, they'll only know their bit and they won't think of the downstream or upstream implications. Upstream, what does it what does it require to make it possible? Downstream, what are the knock-on impacts? And a lot of wish lists in large organizations are from a leader who wants a transformation. They will initiate the project, but before they initiate it, they'll crowdsource from their organization. Give me some ideas. Here is an opportunity. I want to create real change. Give me your best ideas for how, where are your pain points? What are your things that we can do to improve the organization? And people will just come up with ideas, but they're brainstorming. They're not analyzing. And, and they just, the, it's, I think, is, is that brainstorming on what often happens is the outcome of that brainstorm is what's handed over to IT, implement that. They've, they've skipped the whole, okay, we've got the brainstorm, uh, you know, the, uh, the wish list. Yeah, we have the wish list done. Now we need to analyze it and make sure we're actually achieving what it is that we want to, to achieve with this wish list. Now, some things we want to achieve, as you said. And they don't, they skip that whole part. And it is, it is when, when you've skipped that part, it's almost impossible to be successful in the project. Yeah. And a lot of it, I've found that, you know, I had a project plan and I got funding for it and it had about 60 requirements. And I, on that basis, based on what the people in the business gave me as the benefits, I got funding for $2 million dollars. Uh, for some developers to run some automations of those 60 requirements for them and that and thankfully what i did was i i split the budget into the approval into two chunks first chunk was you know first tranche was initial study and also getting the the organization of developers and business analysts up and running and then the second tranche was going to be for the remaining funds in the end, the second tranche, and again, some of it was hijacked by Brexit, but because we needed to redeploy it into, I mean, working for a bank, we optimized our payment platform, but because there was huge, huge benefits, not on, and actually, when we talk about cost savings, this didn't save headcount, which is what originally was the business case, but it did save uh, more than that. Because uh, we were targeting half a million per annum on, on employee headcount reductions, what we ended up with was over a million dollars of savings in interest and bank charges. So again, you know, it depends what you want to redeploy, and and the assumptions maybe if you do the right monitoring, the business case doesn't stack up, or there's a better opportunity out there, and you have to redeploy the funds elsewhere. So capital rationing, if you're flexible and you're open and you understand, well, I'm not going to get the credit for it, but it's the right thing for the business. So I'm willing to surrender the resources I had earmarked for my project to do this initiative because it made more sense for the business. And and on the, the resources piece then as well is, um, you know, when you carry out your reviews of the business case and you decide, yeah, this project no longer makes sense, we have a Diverse, we do some, you know, we give our resources to another. But even still made sense, but not as much sense as that other opportunity. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, but for whatever reason that are, you know, they're, they're, but the other thing is, even when your project does make sense at the planning stage, mm -hmm. you need to be realistic about what resources you need. And um, you yeah. kind of raised the earlier in the, in your introduction piece. Um, but people do tend to, you know, even when the business case works, Mostly the planning is done. They've done the analysis. They're making, they've made sure they're, they're doing the right things that they, they will get them. But then they plan around and what people tend to, to, I've seen so many times where, especially even experienced project managers often still do it, that they'll, they'll say, right, we've three things to do in this project set, for example. Part A will take this amount of time to do. Part B takes this amount of time to do. And part C takes this amount of time to do. And then they say, so the overall project, you just add A, B, and C. There we go. That's how much time it the project. They do not allow for any contingency whatsoever. And and I've had I've had this 
I, I will, um, you know, like, like when you have a, a movie and they, they move several characters into one for the point of the movie, I'll, I'm going to put several people. I've had several conversations with several different project managers, all roughly around the same thing. And, and I'll just, and I'll just pretend they're all one person. And you've had, I've had this conversation with them before that they were, you know, three months late for a project previously. And, and they, they come up with the timelines for this and we've asked them, well, you were three months off the last time. How do I know this is better? Oh, well, the last time um, somebody went off on maternity leave, that's not likely to happen again. Okay. But the time before that, you were you were several months late as well. Oh, but that time, somebody got hit by a, a bus and, you know, was out in, in hospital for several uh, weeks and it was a few months before they came back. That's not going to happen again. And the time before that, you were several months late and that was, well, well somebody, and there's always something. And, and what's happened is they, they have taught that these things are one-offs and individually they are, but something is always going to happen. It might not be the same thing that happened the last time, but there will be something. And um, I think, you, you know, we had a conversation before that and you mentioned you'd read research that a ballpark figure is to add about 20% you know, or contingency for both time and money. And uh, yeah, I would say at, at least that, you know, don't be overconfident. Don't assume everything's going to go right. If, if you don't add any contingency, basically you're going to be late with the project. Whereas if you add contingency, it's not really cheating. It's being realistic about your project is not going to be strict. Because even without people being off sick or, or, or leaving the company, it's transitions. You know, when you finish A, you need to transition over to B, to transition over to C. And those transitions may not be nice and smooth. Um, anything can happen between handoffs from one team to another. So, you know, build in contingency. And even if you're part of an overall program, when you build in that contingency, you're pushing the whole program back and it's gone into the red. At least you're aware. And maybe you will have to take out that contingency in order to fit in with the program, but then you can put in your risks. We've no contingency. There's a big risk here that we're not going to make it. it it's communication, really. And it's making sure everybody knows what's going to happen. And so it's not a surprise. It's not a shock. It's a disappointment yeah. maybe when you do run over, but it's not a shock. You can say, look, when I originally did it, I had contingency in for this and you took it out. So it was always a realistic likelihood. Yeah. And when you talk about communication, it's, absolutely that it's managing that expectation especially with the executive sponsors now if you're doing your job well you won't need to you won't need to use them you will just communicate this is the status and if they have any follow-up questions they'll ask but usually what i've found is that sponsors don't really communicate that much with me because they know what i'm reporting when when you get that level of trust they're not really too bothered, but I know they read my reports because when they talk to me, they you can tell they know what's going on. So I always make sure, even if it's just rep, uh, sending out the weekly scorecard, that I have a clear outline of what's gone on that week, where we are, and for their information, I keep appendices of detailed analysis that show with each statement, if it's important enough, I'll back it up with more detail so they don't have to come to me but if they do i'll have the answers as well occasionally they do and i like to try and turn it around as quickly as possible in terms of a detailed breakdown so that because a lot of the time their conversations are at the portfolio level so really they want to make sure they're looking at it from a more holistic perspective and if what you're doing is going to have a knock-on effect or if what some other project is doing is causing you unnecessary delays then they need to be aware and again this comes back to i guess the leadership and you need leadership various types of leadership at all levels but the important thing is that you use your sponsor you make sure they're engaged you leverage that relationship you make sure they feel comfortable that the project is well managed because the worst thing you can do is have a disengaged executive sponsor because they're dangerous once they lose faith in your project they're going to be looking for other initiatives to redirect that funding and as a project manager that's an existential threat sometimes it's the right thing but if you've shown you've managed the project well i'm sure if you need to stay in a specific organization or another 
they'll find you other work or they will refer you to one of their um one of their associate companies or network to actually say this is a good guy do you have any work for him so you you get continuity of work as a project manager through the referrals through being someone who's solid but generally speaking what i've found is when i work for people they don't tend to want to let me go <laughs> that makes sense just always a good a good position to be in all right yeah and, and as you as you said you know the, the leadership and governance is as the project goes oh, that's that's very important uh, you know to have a good project manager to 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 be on top of things and you know things don't always go smoothly and in fact i don't think i've ever been on a project that has gone smoothly there's always got to be challenges but that's what makes a good project manager somebody who can overcome those challenges or, or can minimize damage done to them and um, because no matter how well you plan how how well you've analyzed how well you've done something outside the project will, will throw you off course if something in the project doesn't yeah you're relying on too many moving parts too many people who have their own roles you cannot micromanage everyone so to an extent you do rely on anecdotal evidence if someone gives you their assurance that they've done something unless they keep failing you you're not going to double check mm. you will check once maybe you ask for you ask follow-up questions just to confirm what's going on or understand well when exactly are you going to produce that piece of work we need and hand it over to the next person and are you finding any issues do you need any support is anything holding you up so there's a lot of that follow-up and and that's a big part of the communication but then there's also the understanding of how does that fit into the big picture and again if you help me back to the planning stage if you don't know what your goals are in the sense of your objectives and your scope you're going to struggle to manage it because you won't know if you're on track you're just doing tasks but if you don't know what the outcomes are you don't have the context you don't have the bigger picture you will struggle to manage. And um, one of the, the key struggles I see as, as as projects get going, so they've moved on from from that initial part and they're 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 moving on. One of the things that you notice as well is effectively it, it's it's scope creep. It's you know, they, we know what the requirements are, but sometimes some project managers yeah, they, there's a balance to be struck. Some are just way too strict nothing can can be done differently to what they envisage others and and i think this is the almost the bigger problem at times is others are too flexible in that yeah. when it, you know if, if they're doing a, a job for a business team and that business team has agreed a set of requirements but then keeps coming and asking oh can we can we tweak this oh can we change that oh, and tries to facilitate them the, the project manager here or tries to f constantly facilitate them but what ends up there is that you know you're kind of just it becomes a never-ending story that's always something and then no matter what you've done at the end they won't be happy where that you failed they'll they'll say no they, they weren't happy because you didn't deliver or something and you're kind of saying hang on that wasn't part of the scope of the project in the first place i've delivered you know as much as i can so i, I think that does require a little bit of you know be a little rigid in in the scope it's not saying that you can never change Atom because we, we literally just said earlier and you, you have to keep under review and you do change, but those changes need to be led by a, a clear change management process. That uh, now By change management, I, I don't mean the normal change management that comes you know, in changing a system. or I mean in changing the project, a change request process. Yeah. Um, it has to be documented. It has to be clear. The new requirements have to be set down. And everybody knows, okay, this is now what we're doing as part of the project. And you've had a chance to redo your plan so that, you know, do you still have the resources? And can the current resources do this new ask? Do you have the time to do it? Do you have the budget to do it? Yeah. You can't just shoo in additional requirements. You overload your project team. And then you introduce more risk into the deploying, the go lives yeah. or the whatever it is you're trying to do in your sprint or your project phase. And I've had that um, most recent example was on three days notice. They decided to pull ahead a go live by about a week in order to make time for a board meeting to get formal sign off. So 
a senior leader obviously wanted to look good in front of their boss. And that was a business requirement. So pulled in a few favors, got another few senior people to kind of uh, the IT organization to concede. Uh, we basically raised it as a risk and said we'd accommodate. And lo and behold, it wasn't the smoothest go life because in order to meet the timing, we had to crash on some of our test scripts. We didn't test everything end to end. We didn't do all the due diligence and things went wrong. Not massively wrong, but wrong enough to create some incremental effort during a period close. And again, the people who asked for it suddenly turned around and blamed us for it going wrong. But one person in the organization actually said it always goes wrong, which wasn't true. And yeah, it's funny how memories are suddenly short when things you, you try and do favors. It doesn't always help. That's it. That's one of the reasons why I, I kind of, as, as, as you know, I come from a business background, so I do try to be a little flexible to the business when I'm, I'm involved in project management roles, but I, I, it is one of the reasons why I think that the change request process needs to be pretty structured because A, people will be less likely to ask you to change silly things if they have to sign off on it. Yeah. If they do sign off on it and things go wrong because they, what they've asked you to do is something like what you were asked, you know, to to basically skip certain things to speed through. At least then they, they can't turn around and start blaming you, saying you just went wrong. You can say, "Hang on, we had this whole process planned out, and you made us skip a large chunk of what we were going to do to make sure it was right." So we cannot take. We told you that was a risk. You ignored it. You said it was an acceptable risk, and. We went ahead and we did it. It was managed. That's the thing. It was managed through, but because there was some incremental work, it got certain people upset who, to be fair, were right to be upset. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it would have made more sense if it was signed off with those caveats because then it's, it, it's harder if you're just at the management level. You're not the executive. You can't ask the questions that say well, you knew about this three months back. Why didn't you communicate it then? So we could have done something about it. We could have reprioritized other things in order to make sure we met that timing. Why did it need to be like on a week's notice? <laughs> and, and that comes down to it as well. I suppose then, you know, overall, we've come at it in a roundabout way, but, you know, one of the most important things was the planning, getting it all done and, and all that and all things. But the, the next uh, most uh, frequent issue of project failure, I think, is poor communications. That yeah. People, yeah. So, like, quite recently, now it's not going to cause a failure to our project, but quite recently on a project, we had set a, a deadline of a certain date to have stuff signed off and, and ready to go early on in the project. So, literally, it was just requirements documentation. And we communicated that out and we were clear on it and we were following up and, and mentioned it several times and on the day that morning we got an email saying that the business team had been it, it was their month end they were busy all week they weren't going to get a chance to even look at it until the following week uh, so during the the stand up but uh, that morning on the, the the thing i had to kind of say to the business lead that that's not acceptable i don't mind that they weren't able to do it because they're in the middle of month end i've, I've you know much experience with that as well but it was the fact that nobody told us this until the day it was due and it's not like we sprung her out in the middle of nowhere we'd been mentioning it several times nobody stood up and said actually that week we're not going to be available you'll have to wait until the following week at which point we would have just said fine and we'd have just rejigged our plans for that but a lack of communication on, on very simple and basic things like availability even needs to be everybody needs to be on the same page there and that came as a little bit of a surprise to me because, you know, you'd think that when you're saying such and such a date and nobody, if the people that you're saying it to can't make it, that somebody would stand up and say, oh no, we're not going to be able to make that date because, but it's, it's surprising how, um, you know, people don't communicate or communication is only one-sided. You're telling people this is, you know, what the plan is, but they're not telling you back, no, that plan won't work because, and that's a big, big source of failure, I think, of projects as well. It's just... People, people not giving feedback where they should give feedback, or people not passing on information that they really should pass on. That they, you know, need to have a little bit of 
because projects are common sense no matter what you do there's a certain amount of it that you can't do everything so common sense needs to come into it and if a timeline doesn't make sense you need people to come back and tell you it doesn't make sense because and then you adjust it yeah it's always a way i mean there's the obvious uh should we say lack of communication or poor team dynamics mm. when you talk about business versus it but cross-functionally within the business i've i've experienced some nightmares as well and this is the problem when you do planning and execution in isolation you're running the risk that there are no touch points between what is a finance project versus what is a business project and there was one transformation i did for treasury payments in a in one of the markets of this global organization where there were tasks that were actually finance tasks but for this particular location it was done in the business but the business had that process and their analyst was running the project but what we hadn't what we hadn't done in terms of our planning and our due diligence was we hadn't confirmed whether the analyst would still be there and what what lo and behold unknown to us the analysts had agreed to leave the organization because as part of a business rationalization so we thought we were just changing the system and the analysts would keep the process because when we started the project that is what the manager said and then suddenly the manager said no we're losing them they won't be able to do that job because we don't have anyone to, else to do there do the job they're the only ones who were working on the project and therefore we're not going to we're not going to have a transfer of the system and that created such a mess because there was a new manager come in uh, for that location who's effectively like the ceo we had a cfo who level manager who was who was who was relatively new as well because they changed twice and they they basically said well there's no one else in the organization who can do that process. So we ended up having to, and you know, we were outsourcing work to our shared service location in India, but they had no resources to do that process either. So they couldn't take on the work. So we had to use the project team members. And I pulled in a few favors to get someone from our central operations team who did the same work in our, in, in my colleagues organization. And actually, it was funny because at that time, I was double dipping because one of my colleagues had retired and the person who was supposed to take over their role decided to leave the organization. So they were going to be promoted into my colleague's role. They decided to leave. And so I had to manage two departments, project team and also the accounts receivable team. So I had my accounts receivable team and I got them to agree to could you manage it until we organize some additional resource in India to take it over and transfer it? So it needed about two months of interim management and processing. And again, that involved a lot of paperwork to get the, the transition involved, but also training because this person who was leaving didn't document anything. Thankfully, we had a central document, so it was copy and paste, but and because we were standardizing processes, there wasn't much customization, but this was all very last minute. It was literally two weeks away from deployment and I had to turn it around and I managed to do it and I had to micromanage it. I was stressed because everyone was screaming, oh, all these customers aren't going to be paid at their rebates and uh, they're going to complain. We're going to have a major issue. It was all managed, but because of the perceived risk, I had to go to a executive board and explain what happened so i was very transparent about it and i managed to talk my way through it and show how things how the multiple failure points came in and funnily enough by being transparent during that perceived failure it wasn't failure because we avoided the catastrophe but it was it was the amount of effort that was involved to avoid it where I had to take over and kind of micromanage it, that um, it uh, and it, you know, it created a lot of noise. But funnily enough, out of it, I came across very well. And um, yeah, a lot of people were saying good things about me. 
but it wasn't a nice experience if that makes sense to turn things around yeah thankfully experiences like that are the exception rather than the rule but they do happen and there's not a lot you can do i mean a project that i was doing the you know who, who would have been say the project champion the mm. person who kind of wanted the project to do left just as the project was starting nobody mm. else in the in the business wanted that particular system in place they couldn't see a value for it I'll be honest, I couldn't see a value for it either, but the, the guy who, who wanted it left just as the project started. You know, it'd be the left before we got the business case complete. It'd have been great. We wouldn't have done it. Yeah, left just as it was. So everybody else that was left there was kind of, you know, what's the point of this project? What are we doing? What we, but the problem was the person who was championing it had convinced the senior level management, the CFO, that it was worth having. So when, even though he left and CFO still wanted the, the thing but nobody else knew what exactly it was supposed to do but there are exceptions though thankfully thankfully they're not the most frequent things they but they can really stress everything out and cause a yeah. project doing well to fail at the last minute but you know it's 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 one of those things do you find that there's a sunk cost fallacy to that you know that you'd already invested so much money in the analysis and the study and standing up a team that you couldn't really pull out I think that does happen quite a lot, yeah. Um, it, it, once a project starts... It's harder uh, to kill it. Yeah, that people... And that's one of the things where, as I was saying, you know, the business case needs to be re reevaluated a lot. That's one of the reasons why people won't reevaluate the business case because they're kind of figuring, what's the point? We are not going to kill this project, even if the business case no longer makes sense. Mm. And they'd rather walk in ignorance rather than yeah. to make that decision and have to fight for it. Personally, I have absolutely no issue, even when a project is mine. I The very first time I ever really did a full-on project was putting in an ERP system. Yeah. And we put it in um, for a first medium-sized company, so it wasn't SAP or Oracle, it was a Tier 2 system. And when we put it in, it was not working the way we wanted. The support we were getting was not what we were expecting. I had been the champion of it as well as the project manager of it, and I ended up doing a, a report on it post it was actually gone live so it was post go live that's how far into the you know hype looking <laughs> and in my report i said we need to pull the plug on this and move to a different system because we're not getting the support um now we didn't end up doing that what happened was the cfo was a very intelligent guy there he was, he was a new cfo he just came in he was a very experienced cfo but he was new to that company and he took the report i'd given given him and he went back to the vendor and he handed it and he says that's your champion saying that. That's the guy who actually selected you and put you in, saying that we now need to go because of the lack of support. And it changed. When they seen that, suddenly they realized, oh, this is serious because I was the one who got them the the you know, got them in. Um, but it was some cost and I was kind of looking at it and thinking there's no point in continuing to pay annual license fees. You know, so it's not doing what we wanted. Now in the end, when they started giving us the support, it could do exactly what we wanted. Which I knew we should be able to do. I just didn't know how to do it. You know, again, and that was also one of my first experiences with IT people, developers having a completely different brain structure to finance people, because we were giving. You know, one of the things was the system didn't give a, an age debtors report, which anyone in finance knows what that is. We had given them in a clear example to developer. This is what it is, and this is how it's designed, and all that. And what they gave us was completely unworkable and we were all in shock and we were just sitting there one day and I just started looking at it and, and about 15 minutes later I had to turn around and say to everybody, you know what, they have actually ticked every box we gave them to tick. They've given us exactly what we asked for. It's completely unusable. It's not an age debtors, but it is what we asked for because our <laughs> brains, when we made certain descriptions, we were describing how you uh, describe it to a, a graduate or a, you know somebody in college learning accountant. But their brain is kind of thinking that way, but a developer was not thinking that way. A developer was, you know, thinking completely different. And that was the problem. Now, as it turned out, we didn't need to get that developed. They did have an age debtors, just not in as part of the system. You had to go into a, another area and download the, the report mm. in order to have the report available to you into a marketplace. Effectively, they had it in the marketplace. But if the developer had known that. Yeah. And it would have been easier, but then they're not the ones who are necessarily the functional experts no they're they're not if you went to the right person because a developer should should 
wouldn't know to question, oh, we already have that. In Do we have that report already? Why are they asking for it? You know? That's it. And that's exactly what it was that we kept asking them, the vendor, look, we don't need a developer. We're not at that level. We need somebody who, who just knows their way around the system to show us. Yeah, we got that person in the end. They sh- they allocated somebody to us, and the system worked great from that point on. Once nobody had mentioned the marketplace functionality to us, once we found that, everything was there. Yeah. But you know, again, though, that was the sunk cost fallacy. I I looked at it, and I had a lot of skin in that game. And despite that, I was still happy to make the recommendation. We leave if this is as good as it gets, and we're not getting the support. There's no point in continuing on paying licensing money for it. We just leave. We find another vendor who's going to give us more support um, and that is important to have the nerve to do that even during the project that whether you know matter how far in the project is if the business case isn't making sense you're not going to get the return on it don't worry about what you've already spent worry about what you're going to spend finishing the project versus what you're going to get back from it yeah makes sense and so i think we've covered most things covered uh, pretty much everything I can think of in terms of the main points. Obviously, funding, making sure you have contingency, making sure you're planning correctly, you're not basing it on assumptions. Only other thing I think we haven't deep-dived into, and this is a decision, when you get to a critical decision where you have to face trade-offs, can a project fail because you've made the wrong trade-offs? I think it can because you've not thought a decision through deeply enough or you're not really aligned on what are the priorities so one leader might have a different set of priorities than another leader and you're kind of funded your 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 project's funded between two organizations but you're not getting the right priorities so when you have to make those important trade-off decisions you're gonna you're gonna please one person but upset another and ultimately, you may not make the right decision for the business because you, you're you not clear what that right decision is because it can be argued either way. Yeah, the only thing I can kind of suggest there is if the analysis was done at the beginning, that might help. And that, you know, it might give you an idea, okay, both decisions are very important for their respective functions or teams or whatever. Mm. This particular decision will benefit the overall company more so than... The other one it might not always be the case you may just end up having to you know just trust your intuition and do the best you can but having the analysis will at least give you some idea um, if there is a clear winner and but not having the analysis means you're just guessing yeah and that's the problem if you're guessing at least declare it as a guess you say we don't have enough information to make a a database decision or a fact-based decision so we're going to run on what we what we know or what we feel is correct and then your decision making is heuristic yeah yeah but at least call it what it is and then exactly. people understand going into it there's a risk there exactly that's and that's all you can do i mean that's one thing with projects you cannot completely remove all risks but what you can do is make sure everybody is aware of what those risks are and then nobody can complain if the risk you know upside or downside um, but it's usually downside risks that we worry about in project management things. And if that risk becomes a- an issue, nobody can complain if they were made aware of it at the beginning that it is a risk. And we try our best to avoid it coming true, but it may happen. Yeah, thank you, John. And ultimately, no one goes into a project willfully intending it to fail. We all want to do our best, but there are times when the challenge requires more effort, more thinking through, and possibly more skills and experience than the team currently have. And that's okay. But again, it's it's being aware of that and being able to manage it somehow. And the one piece of advice I'd give to anybody who is engaging in, whether you're an experienced project manager or you're about to get into it, you're about to take on a project or whatever, things do go wrong. And when they go wrong, do your best to salvage them, but don't start, don't panic, don't start feeling that you're not good enough or whatever. It has happened to everybody. You know, just early on when I kind of went out on, on my own and, and, you know, ended up doing, I'm a consultant or so, I'm a project manager, but I do get pulled into project management roles. 
and an awful lot of them were to try and go in and rescue a failing project because yeah. things went wrong and uh, th th those things usually were going back to what we've just discussed earlier but um but you know i i kind of have built up a reputation for being able to do that now but as i said at the beginning like that first project i did where i ended up doing a report after we went live saying we need to scrap it because i consider that project a failure because even though i got the system in place and that it didn't do what we wanted to do initially we we salvaged it in the end and I salvaged the tanks to the smart thinking of the CFO, who was a very experienced person. You know, a less experienced CFO would have probably panicked and would have said, oh, you made a complete failure. You've wasted all this. And then he didn't. He, he kind of figured, no, the, what we're looking for here has to exist. We're just not asking the right people for the right questions. So he gave them the, my report and, and that was it. So I got lucky there that I, and I seen from what, you know, had become a terrible, in my opinion, failure. We salvaged a great winner of it, and then I realized, you know, from that early on, oh, you don't necessarily need to panic about these things. You just need to try and calm everything down and think it through. So, you know, if, if you're doing a project and it's going wrong, something really bad happens, don't panic. Like your example as well, you know, earlier about the, the last minute changes that, you you know, you, you had to call in favors. You, you managed to salvage that project. It can be salvaged. It might not be perfect. It might not do everything that you wanted, but just try not to panic and don't ever learn from the experience. That's the main thing. Yeah. And from that experience, what I'd add to that is don't hide bad news. Get it out there as soon as possible. Once you know there's bad news, yeah, hiding bad news. So burying it, it will come back tenfold and it will be a lot worse. That's it. And hiding bad news is just leads to so much stress. I've seen it happen with people. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I never bother trying. I'll, I'll just, you know, own up to wherever went wrong. I will happily say we need to, to cancel this whole project because it's no longer going to make, because I will not hide bad news because if you try hiding bad news, you will just get so stressed out. It will damage your credibility as a project manager. Damage your I want. You know, damage your health. Forget credibility. You know, if you're that stressed out because you're trying to be open, be transparent. When things are going wrong, let people know things are going wrong. So then if you cannot salvage it, at least they were aware. And if you need more support, they can get you some more support. And again, that comes from enlightened leadership because sometimes I've been in projects where you just didn't get the resources. You got what you were given and you had to make do. And every day was a kicking in the governance meeting. But recently, if you get the right leaders, you can say, I'm struggling. What they do is they bring in more team members and very skilled team members and you think oh this is easy and that's the sort of projects you want really not just uh, not just projects where they pay lip service but it's all for show and you know you have the ceremonial status updates but they're all just for a you just end up feeling like you're taking if you if you if you find you're in a project where every status meeting is about taking a beat a verbal beating get out it's not worth your health and and the, the other thing as well is while not necessarily everybody would be able to come in you know as a light and shining armor and save the day for you what you might find is that when you admit these things are going wrong these are issues and that somebody else maybe even somebody quite junior in the in the meeting will will turn and say actually i had an experience like that before and we tried this yeah we tried that or they'll, they'll give you, yeah, okay, how about we we add on, you know, we make, extend the project by two months, we'll lack it your time to bring it back in, or, you know, there, there, there'll be, or, or they may even just make this, the decision, you know what, if it's gone that bad, maybe we should call it quits. Yeah. And Try something work. else, do yeah. some other initiative. Yeah. And maybe that will bring you further forward than, say, and persevering. Yeah, trying to hide bad news from everybody and pretend everything is working when it's not. On yeah yeah I mean bad news or trying to succeed when is clearly not working. Recognizing it at last. Yeah yeah he's, you know one one thing a one uh, leader executive sponsor said to me was, and this was funny. It was after I delivered <laughs> classic case of delivering what was asked for, but it didn't deliver the the outcomes he was looking for. He said to me, and I think I've said this in a previous episode, he said to me, well, we need to be more agile. We need to 
we need to be able to pivot you know obviously i it didn't help that a month before i'd known about these agile consultants coming in so he was using the same buzzwords that i'd heard from them on their podcast and so i explained to him can you please describe exactly what agile means here are my dependencies here are my constraints here's what i'm empowered to do now can you bridge the gap that would enable me to have the authority to make decisions and the resources to deliver the other opportunities and there was dead silence and i let it linger for about five minutes snuck the place out and but yeah that that wasn't good but it kind of on a on a fundamental level if you're experienced you know what you're doing um but you have to be clear where things are going wrong and you need to be able to read what's happening even if it's just saying I can see this is not working. Then you define, is it planning? Is it execution? And then from there, you need to drill down into, well, what is the root cause? And as you said at the start, it's getting to understanding what that root cause of failure is, because only then can you address the underlying issues. I suppose, um, suppose then I, I'll, I'll put you on the spot, Dante. Based on, on what we discussed, if you are giving some advice to a, a project manager, whether experienced or start, or maybe not even a full-time project manager, maybe it's somebody walking in a business who's about to, to be lumbered with the task of being the project manager for a project that they're doing, what would, you, what would be the key advice you'd give them? Start with knowing what your goal is and how this project will deliver value and what sort of time duration you've got to deliver that value. And then do a feasibility study before you even go into it. If it's not feasible or if it's not going to yield you a benefit, I'd say you'd, you'd have to question, is it actually worth doing at all? How about yourself, John? I, I would pretty much agree with that. I, I think um, the planning put together, don't skip the business case. Don't make any assumption. At that start, don't make an assumption that, oh, doing this will work. Do the analysis. Take the time to do the analysis. If you can't do it, get somebody in who can because the analysis at that stage is is your best investment because it will make sure you're doing the right thing or you don't do it at all. And it will everything else kind of goes off that. Brilliant. So um with that with that said, thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of business breaks uh, we hope you found the discussion on avoiding project failure both enlightening and valuable now remember success in project management is within reach when we equip ourselves with the right knowledge and strategies so now dear listeners we'd love to hear from you so if you enjoyed this episode and gave valuable insights please take a moment to show your support for the podcast don't forget to hit that review button on your favorite platform subscribe to the podcast and share it with your fellow enthusiasts your support means the world to us and helps us to bring more valuable content your way also we'd be thrilled to receive your feedback so i've prepared a short feedback form to hear your thoughts suggestions and ideas for future episodes your input will guide us in creating content that resonates with you and addresses your interests Stay tuned for more exciting episodes on Business Breaks. And until next time, keep breaking new ground in the world of business. Wishing you success and growth in all your endeavours. This is John Byrne and myself, Dante Healy, signing off. As always, thank you very much, John, and see you next time. Thank you, Dante. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Healy and John Byrne.